No, they're done. Welcome, 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 everybody. David Griscom here with Left Reckoning 128, joined by my partner in crime and good friend, Matt Leck. How you doing, brother? I'm doing very well, uh, David. I, 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 I always love when the machines uh fail <laughs> so um, for those who were just listening there uh that uh cold open there was two uh driverless cars in uh, david's hometown of austin texas uh <laughs> basically just confused in an intersection uh shutting that thing down and like, drunk drivers. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i gotta say like you know thank god they don't just start like going haywire yeah. and run into a daycare or something like that. Like that's, it's crazy. You know, the, the scary thing about that is one um, that the federal government is doing nothing. I mean, it would be swell if uh, Trump wasn't the president anymore. And maybe there was a Democrat in office who might do something about tech companies using our roads uh, to test drive their insane contraptions. Oh, wait. Um, yeah. But yeah. apparently uh, criticizing that or making that point just means you love Trump. But honestly, uh, I feel like you could get Trump against the driverless cars just on aesthetic grounds. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, the thing about Trump is that, like, you can get yourself into trouble if you start to think too much of Trump as the individual versus him as a right. political figure. Because 100 percent, you could get Trump to be against driverless cars. Like, yeah. I feel like you could get him to be a lot of things that people sort of were hoping that maybe he was going to do. But he's he just so handled and he's handled very, very well by people that folks forget that. But yeah, um, frightening thing here um, for for folks, um, you know, who've been reading my work in Jacobin on this show and in other places, HB twenty one twenty seven means that uh, you can't challenge state code when it comes to local regulations. And guess what? We have a state code in the beautiful state of Texas. Auto drive cars are legal, baby. Um, so until we break that power, oh my you don't even have the ability as a city to uh, challenge that kind of shit. So fun stuff um, in the home and the land of the free um, but <laughs> folks. We got a we got a pretty great show for you all tonight. In just a little bit, uh, we're going to be joined by the one and only uh, Max Alvarez, um, you know, a, a person who I respect immensely. Uh, for his work at the Real News Network and at his podcast, Working People's Pod. Um, he's going to be joining us to talk about big news. Um, big news. We were going to have him come on and talk about Obama and his new Netflix documentary. Sorry, folks who came here for that. Uh, we'll have to get him on later because um, just this morning, uh, there was an announcement that the Teamsters um, have come to a tentative agreement with UPS. Um, so we had Max on here to sort of talk about what's in it, how we can maybe think about it. And I think most importantly, frankly, um, talking about people who are sympathetic supporters, members, participants in the labor movement, 
how we should sort of orient ourselves in contract fights and struggles like this that we aren't directly engaged in, right? That we're sort of supporting from the outside. Um, always really great and, and enlightening to speak with Max. Um, yeah, I mean, just to kind of like uh, set the table a little bit more for the interview, does it is it your impression that it's sort of what we're seeing is definitely a, uh, a victory and a, a step forward. And to the extent that like if the rank of file sends it back, it just means that there is an even more militant uh, appetite among the rank of fire than we expect. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I'll just put this up before we do our opening segment. Um, this is from the. Teamsters for Democratic Union, for people who aren't familiar, that's a group within the Teamsters, which in my opinion represents maybe more radical militant aspect of, of, of the Teamsters. Uh, we've had Paul Prescott on the program before, who's an organizer uh, with them. You should check out his work and what he talked to about us when he was on the show. But this is how they're framing it. The strike threat makes UPS deliver. UPS walked away from the bargain table on July 5th after telling our union we have nothing more to offer. Today, the company returned to the table and agreed to a tentative agreement that forces the company to deliver record uh, wage increases on top of all the improvements we have already won in our year-long contract campaign. Um, and in it, they sort of lay, lay out um, many of the wins, including an end to two-tier contracts, no more two-tier 22.4. Um, uh, part-time starting pay increase, full-time um, increase, pension increases for IBT, uh, UPS plans, current part-timers, like a lot of big wins in this. And like the way I think to think about this the way that my comrades within the union and people who have been talking to me have been sort of framing this has been, look, if the rank and file um, rejects this contract because they think they can win more, that's great, Right. Um, but anyone like the kind of things that like, oh, well, because there's a tentative agreement, that means people have s sold out, I think is an incorrect read at this point, um, just because a lot has been done here. Right. So like like if, if the like if the argument is like like if, if rank and file members said we want to reject this tentative deal, that is their prerogative and their right in hell. If they can win more, I think that's great. I support that 100 um, percent. But this is also one of the more significant contracts that has been given to UP, Teamsters members in a long while. Um, and this doesn't come, it doesn't fall from the moon. It doesn't come from the heart of UPS. Um, it comes from the fact that there was a very legitimate, um, and still is, by the way, a very legitimate and, and severe strike threat that they are responding to. Um, so regardless of what happens, if it gets accepted or if it doesn't, there's a lot here to be very excited about both for Teamsters and for the union movement at whole. But anyways, we'll talk more with Max about that in just a minute. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Ron DeSatan. <laughs> Have you heard that before? That was a little blue wave uh, nickname that I thought was pretty good. <laughs> Bro, we actually, we might have to go into it. Did you see the DeSantis clip where they include like all left media, like Pac-Man, the Vanguard? um i did it's very funny like it's it, which is like uh, one I'm, I'm scrolling through to see if we got in there and of course not because all of our shit is unuseful because we said yes desantis is worse than trump but also he's a lot less cool and electable um and that doesn't work for um their thing but i i thought it was very funny that david feldman was uh was uh that's really good at, at length <laughs> it's like guys you it's a it's a it's a cliche at this point to say the DeSantis people are too online. But if if you are go, sitting through David Feldman's wonderful 
but six hour long uh, streams about uh, politics and clipping it out saying this is the thing that proves our guy should be president of the United States. You might be a little bit uh, online a little bit. Mm hmm. Well, let's get to some of these things in just one second. But um, in the spirit of, of what we we're just talking about, uh, we usually don't put up chats during the thing. But uh, Brian here is a UPS worker and rank and file teamster and just figured I would share their thoughts here. Um, rank and file teamster uh, as a UPS worker, rank and file teamster and TDU member. This is better than what Hoffer Jr. could have brought. But I'll be voting no and fighting to win more. There's several issues with the TA. So appreciate um, you no, giving no. us, you know, here nothing like got y'all's back 100 of the way whatever rank and file decides here i think it's you know it's nice when these things go back to the membership in my opinion yeah i mean and we ultimately get into this with max like yeah. what is the role of podcasters <laughs> in situations <laughs> like this which i i'm, I'm uh, sensitive to so well um all right we'll get to max in just a second i wanted to do a quick segment quick shout out here uh, matt i don't know if you have this video handy um but yes. i want to shout out a uh, great kassar um, who is a congressperson, a former city council member here in Austin, uh, somebody who fought very hard for workers here in this state, um, who right now, today, um, has been on a thirst strike, demanding that the Biden administration shows up for workers um, in this country by implementing federal heat standards. We talked about this a lot. You can read my article in Jacobin. Um, about this this subject, about the Death Star Bill in Texas, um, which, amongst other things, is going to eradicate water break provisions for workers in Austin and Dallas um, and prevent a whole host of, of, of other things. But this is a basic kind of workers' right thing. This is a basic kind of human rights thing. As longtime listeners of this show will know, you know, I used to work in, in, in concrete in the South. I know what it's like to work in a non-unionized work facility um, and not have the right to get water when it's 100 degrees outside, right? Because, you know, bosses might get suggestions and things like that. But at the end of the day, they want work to be done as fast as possible, um, even if that means literally putting the lives of the workers under their uh, under their supervision at risk. It's absurd right now that we don't have federal water um, heat standards or federal water um, break standards in this in this country. And it's really important to fight for those on the state level in the absence of that. But. You know, the federal government should 100 uh, percent be doing yeah. that. So shout out to Greg for going on this uh, the, this thirst strike. Uh, let's just play a minute of what he said um, at the U.S. Congress the other day on this. I'm Greg Gassar and I represent the heart of Texas. Thirteen years ago, I stood alongside construction workers as we sounded the alarm at Austin City Hall that workers were dying after being forced to work for hours on end in the sun without rest and without a water break. And so our community came together and passed a local protection to guarantee everyone this basic right. Five years later, families in Dallas were mourning the losses of fathers and sons and brothers and tios who died on the job because they too were forced to work without a water break. So that community came together to pass protections to guarantee this basic right. Now as San Antonio bears the hottest 10-day streak in recorded history, now as our globe bears the hottest days in recorded history this month, people in San Antonio want to pass those same sorts of protections. But Governor Greg Abbott signed a priority bill eliminating the right to water breaks for Texas workers beginning September 1st. 
people are dying, like Eugene Gates and Justin Corey Foster and Felipe Pascual dying while working in the Texas heat this year. And we don't need more Texans dying in the sun. Instead, we need OSHA and the Biden administration to take immediate action and passing a federal heat protection rule because bearing the Texas heat is brutal, but forcing workers to work in that heat is cruel. I yield back my time. So in my opinion, that's, uh, you know, what you should be doing as, as a congressperson. Um, you know, if we don't necessarily have the, the majorities of, of, of progressives, let alone democratic socialists, this is the kind of pressure you should be putting on the administration here. Um, happy to see, um, you Oops, know, sorry. Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, of, of course, showing up for something as sensible and absurd. I'm not, not trying to uh, discredit or take away from how great it is that Greg's doing it. It's just absurd that in 2023, uh, we're having to fight about something like this that should just be a basic kind of common sense uh, issue. But, you know, solidarity to, uh, you know, Greg for showing up and putting his, you know, his money where his mouth is, uh, if you forgive the phrase, you know, and and, and saying this is, this is ridiculous. This is dangerous. People are literally dying right now. This is a life and death issue. It sometimes can seem so simple of a thing to say that people working out in the sun should be able to have access to water, should be able to cool down under the sun, um, uh, you know, in the shade when it's hot out. And remember, too, for people who might have not had experience working outside, you know, like heat can kill so fast it's not just that it's uncomfortable um yeah. and one of the things that's really horrific about heat um yeah, sorry heat illnesses and heat deaths is that they can happen one suddenly in the sense that your body heats up way too quickly um but they can also take a long time to materialize so like when we're talking about some of these heat deaths of workers you know a lot of times these are people who come back you know they're they're dizzy they're showing signs of heat exhaustion but the death doesn't happen maybe at the work site. It happens four, five, six hours later. Um, you know, so it, it can it can create a lot of damage. I mean, it can kill very fast and it can also kill over you know a period of time. Um, and as the country is getting hotter, as the globe is getting hotter, as we're all suffering under this heat wave, um, you know, it's cynical, it's sinister, and evil that the GOP in this state um basically put forward and passed a bill to take away. Um, rights of workers in Austin and Dallas uh, to have water breaks. It's equally absurd and cynical and sinister that in the United States of America in 2023, uh, that's not something that's universal at this point. Yeah. I mean, we keep running up against these things. I mean, it was, it's like the, um, the no sick days <laughs> for uh, the rail workers um, as a demand is like, oh, what century is this? And it is like, how many people have to die for this? To, mm-hmm. for them to actually give a shit like does that have to be dozens probably more than that honestly it depends how much over time what kind of workers they are like yeah it's it's disgusting and uh before we jump to talking more about the the strikes and stuff going on i'll just say about greg like you know when greg does stuff like this he has my utmost respect this is why i think you know it's really important that he was elected to congress his positions on israel palestine are not just frustrating um they're wrong um, and they're they're dangerous, and it's extremely frustrating that he steps outside of what is already, in a lot of ways, low bar stuff that we get from the rest of the squad. It's immensely puzzling, um, you know, his position on that, specifically given one, his willingness to show for workers, but two, his advocacy and his leadership since he's been in Congress on advocating uh, for the Cuban people 
against the cruel anti-human sanctions that the United States government puts on them. So, you know, I have hope that, you know, eventually through dialogue and conversation, Greg can turn a corner on the question of Israel-Palestine. If people remember, if you watched the show last week, I mean, we were literally talking to someone in the West Bank um, who was describing schools being raided by Israeli security forces when they were throwing stun grenades in at children. It's an undefensible thing. Um, so, you know, I'm not ignoring those things um, in in praising and, and and saying that this is a good thing. Um, but I'm also saying that this is something that we should be, you know, when, when you see somebody take a stand like this, it's good to say that this is a great thing and hope that we can maybe get them to come around on these other issues. Yeah, 100%. Um, but yeah, um, I know we got, uh, we got Max to get to, but we got some cool news coming um, from the land of the angels uh, with a guy who I think you and I are big fans of generally. Um, I love Snoop Dogg. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, you know, I mean, growing up, obviously, Snoop's music. It's funny how things have collapsed, though. Like the celebrity, like growing up, somebody like Snoop Dogg is just the biggest celebrity in the entire world, right? And so, and now we see, like, oh, he's a guy that struggles to get a graphics card on launch day, like <laughs> everybody else. And he's also getting screwed as a uh, uh, artist from by streaming uh, payments and stuff like that. So he's very sensitive to this stuff. And, uh, you know, we won't play the clip. Um, it, it's probably worth its own sort of uh, um, delving into the solutions to this sort of thing. But I do appreciate the clip of Snoop that's going around where he's, it's in the middle of the panel where it's like, isn't it amazing how exciting these times are? He's like, yeah, mm -hmm. but no one's getting paid. <laughs> and, but anyway, so, the uh, Hollywood strikes are going on um, in, in the stunt people are joining along, uh, but Rolling Stone had to delete a tweet uh, earlier today. And, and, and the, it's pretty clear why here's the tweet. Uh, it was Snoop Dogg had to cancel two of his forthcoming concerts at the Hollywood bowl in solidarity with the strikes. And then the, then the, this was the clause that pissed everybody off that are completely unrelated to what he does as a musician. <laughs> Now, that tweet is gone and the the um the article now like you know mentions his sort of like issue with the streaming model and stuff like that so i just think it's when it's good to throw a little bit of chin music at the median now whereas because they are going to try especially like um hollywood reporter these these magazines that have connections with the studios, they're going to try mm -hmm. to drive this stuff apart. You already saw this with a, a clip of Matt Damon um, made to look as if he was anti-strike. And then you played the full thing and it was actually a much more forthright, like support the strikers thing. But very like on guard against that in this time. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate the, uh, the, the chin music thrown at uh, Rolling Stone there, because obviously this is just, this is this is everyone is dealing with this right now, including I would add uh, reporters of uh, for places like Rolling Stone, mm -hmm. right? And the solutions to all the the money getting sucked out of all of this and going up into like financiers' pockets and investors and that stuff is to decommodify the essentials, right? Mm -hmm. Like we need we need single payer healthcare, we need ho public housing that's worth living in that an artist is not embarrassed to live in. Um, or, or like that actually like, you know, doesn't have gas fucking uh, stuff giving you asthma. Like we need actually like solid decommodify higher education. We need people to be able to go to school and pursue these sorts of things that mm -hmm. are beyond just STEM. Like we need all of these things uh, broadly. 
no 100 and like it's it's a great thing to see somebody like snoop dogg and i, I just gotta say that like this is the second appearance of snoop dogg on this program if you remember matt um and the second or maybe the third appearance of matt damon um both of those times related to a very dumb thing, uh, which was NFTs crypto, and crypto. Right. Um, oh, I think right. Matt Damon more directly, Snoop Dogg a little bit unclear, but probably no, leading into it. Bro, Snoop sent his own double. I mean, it's funny because yeah. it's like arm's length, but also definitely like he sent a guy to be there, his uh, representative at the crypto thing. But yeah, this is it. This is the actual thing. Um, is like, how do we actually get paid? It's not going to be none of these speculative like assets it's not gonna be nothing we need the government to step in and reclaim these sorts of uh profits and put them back into a social use yeah i mean that's it so shout out to to snoop dog shout out to matt, matt damon shout out to greg kassar um you know these are tough times across the country they're tough times politically and um i will say this that when times are tough if i had to pick one movement to be successful i would pick the labor movement over any electoral force 100 percent every yeah, of time of course yeah so you know electorally politically we're in very difficult time seeing these big moves for the teamsters seeing what's potentially cooking up with the uaw seeing what's going on with hollywood um, with the writers and the actors on strike right now is huge and finding ways to support these things and understand that kind of common sense human worker like solidarity that is out there um you know and, and seeing figures yeah it's like okay yeah snoop's rich right matt damon's rich these guys don't have to fuck around um and play this game right they're secure like of course they can win more and that's a good thing right that's a great thing i think all people who labor should be able to get as much as possible from these motherfuckers who don't labor and 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 profit off of these folks yeah but you know when in the grand scheme of these things these guys are set and the fact that they're still showing up for everyday folks because remember like on the hollywood strike um i, I sorry I, I know this is supposed to be a quick segment matt but like i will just say this you're getting all this really there's a section of the American left right now that I think is having is falling into really bad class analysis when it yes. comes to what like labor movements to support versus others. Remember that the vast majority of these people, like those guys who you see on TV, who you're like, oh, I know that guy. You know, I don't really know where they're from. The vast majority of those people like really financially are people like us, um, particularly now. If you talk about streaming where these guys are getting nothing. Uh, when it comes to residuals right so like a lot of these people who might you they might be recognizable to you as a figure um they're not making it like they used to um so you know when you have guys like matt damon and snoop dogg and all these other folks or mark ruffalo showing up in solidarity with these people that's a really beautiful thing and a really beautiful lesson in solidarity something different than what we saw unfortunately for example with the nba strike um, you know, when Obama made a call and got the big stars of the NBA to basically turn their backs um, on, on, on a player walkout. These are things that like we should all be supporting, particularly Matt and I as people who, you know, put stuff content out there for people. But all of us, it's a good it's a good propaganda moment right now to say, like, yeah, we got yep. Snoop Dogg and Matt, Matt Damon and all these yeah. great folks showing solidarity and fuck the rest of them. I mean, you know, fuck the people who are on the other side of the, of the picket line. And it's and it, yeah, it's so clear, like how, bro, like. 
you want the capitalists to have more like I, I, any chance to get more because that's turned back against us right the like, hard working the producers I mean, yeah. are sitting the producers are sitting on funds that they should not have <laughs> that yeah. should be already in the workers pockets and they're they're using that to starve them out right and so like any chance to fight against that you want every, like anybody who actually does the work on their side like i mean it's 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 so obvious yeah well folks we're going to jump over to max alvarez um the editor in chief of the real news network host of working people's pod talk a little bit more about the teamsters and the uh, ups contract negotiations we were going to get into obama stuff he wrote a really great piece that's not out yet that matt and i had the pleasure of reading in advance um on obama's awful 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 um <laughs> netflix show it's on work circle, but sure. um this news was too big we just couldn't we couldn't fit it in so we'll have to have max on soon to talk about his piece if you want that kind of fun shit uh we got some good Ron DeSantis and Russell Brand uh, to talk about on the other side. So enjoy this interview with Max uh, and come back and meet us in, in about half an hour to talk uh, Brandon DeSantis, which was a, a really historical meeting of the minds. I mean, really, just a lot of so sad. I can't even make a joke about it. I know. It. I'm just it's too bad. We'll talk, we should talk about that before we get, get into it on the other side, folks. But enjoy right. this talk. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to Left Reckoners. David here, joined by Matt Leck. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing well, David. And we are thrilled to be joined on this Tuesday uh, by Maximilian, Max Alvarez. You know him from the Real News Network and Working People's Podcast. How are you doing, brother? Thanks so much for joining us on Left Reckoning today. Thanks so much, brother. It's great to be on here. Love everything you guys do. Good to see you. And what a day we're having, right? <laughs> <I know. laughs> I know we did, you know, when we asked you to come on, we didn't know uh, we'd be getting this news this morning. So thank you uh, for taking taking some time. In a little bit, we're going to talk about a guy who doesn't know very much about labor. Um, but while we have somebody who does know a decent amount about American labor, Max, we were hoping um, if you could give our audience a sense about why this is such a big day uh, regarding the, the Teamsters negotiations. As people know, we've been covering this a lot on the program, a lot of the demands. Uh, but right now, it seems like there's a tentative agreement. And I was just curious, Max, if you wanted to sort of talk about, you know, how, how you're feeling about it, whether or not people should feel very optimistic, what's in it. I mean, just give us your general kind of uh, recap of, of the moment right here. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give my live impressions as best as uh, I can. But um, I guess to make the, the, the point about why this is such a flustering moment, is I'm in here, as folks can see, I'm in the, the, the green room of the real news because I've got the great Teddy Ostro, host of uh, the Upsurge podcast, where he and Ruby Walsh have been covering the UPS contract fight for the past year in a really incredible in-depth uh, uh, way. So if, if folks are trying to make sense of this, obviously go back and rewatch the uh, coverage from Left Reckoning. Check out the episodes on Working People, my podcast, where I've interviewed UPSers, including a couple recent episodes where we talk about the contract fight. But definitely make time to go check out the mm -hmm. Upsurge podcast. It's a really invaluable production that 
we at the Real News were, were excited to, uh, you know, co-sponsor and syndicate along with the great folks at In These Times magazine. So Teddy and I, we after all that year of work on that podcast, we brought Teddy down here to Baltimore for the Real News because we're hosting a live stream tonight, which was billed as, uh, you know, we're a week away from potentially one of the biggest strikes in U.S. history. We're talking 340,000 uh, Teamster UPS workers full time and part time around the country. Right. This is, you know, like a really kind of uh, seismic contract dispute that I think we've all acknowledged, like, you know, is going to play a significant role uh, in determining where the labor movement goes from here. Right. Because the, 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 the drama within this UPS contract fight itself is very, I think, representative of where organized labor is in general in this country. Again, I won't go into like the whole backstory. You can listen to our respective coverages uh, uh, about that. But, you know, like we're talking about the Teamsters. We're talking about Jimmy Hoffa, you know, a, a, a storied union with a long and, uh, you know, checkered past. Let's put it mm-hmm. lightly, um, but also very much a symbol of the labor movement, a symbol of a bygone, more militant working or more organized working class right um and you know it's been a long road from jimmy hoffa to to sean o'brien the current uh, international mm-hmm. president of the current president of the international brotherhood of teamsters uh sean o'brien himself was voted in about a year and a half ago through a reform slate uh, because the membership of the Teamsters said that they didn't want any more of the Hoffa legacy because it was Jimmy Hoffa's son uh, who was the previous president of the Teamsters. And in fact, uh, you know, he he was a tentpole of, you know, the kind of business unionism, concessionary bargaining, uh, the, the, the sort of, you know, lack of rank and file militancy that, you know, we've been seeing permeate the labor movement essentially for the, our entire lifetimes, right? We all know that mm-hmm. yeah. you know, from the late 70s, early 80s on, labor, organized labor in this country has been on a nosedive decline to the point that we are barely hovering above 10% union density in this country, 6% in the private sector, which is frankly abysmal. Um, so labor, and that, that was a long drawn out process. That wasn't just deindustrialization, though that was mm-hmm. a big part of it. That wasn't just globalization, though that was a big part of it. Um, but it was also, um, you know, kind of really changing attitudes from uh, Wall Street, from corporate America, from, you know, the Democrats who used to be more of a supporter of organized labor. Even a lot of Republicans used to be as well. But the political might of labor has waned in that same time that the just collective organized worker power represented through different um, unions, you know, that has also been in decline over the past, you know, 40, 50 years at the same time that we've been seeing, you know, uh, you know, union membership go down, yet productivity has been going up. Um, people in this country have been working larger, longer, they've been working harder, they've been producing more profits and and revenue for our employers. Yet what we have seen is with the decline of union density, with, um, you know, workers more or less being on their own, not being protected by collective bargaining agreements or having the collective strength of a union, all of that excess productivity, like 
practically all of it has been siphoned into the pockets of the 1%, into the pockets mm-hmm. of Wall Street and corporate America, stashed in tax havens in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. We have been getting robbed left and right for decades. And I'm sad to say that, you know, a number of unions and union leaderships, you know, like have played a part in that decline. Now, Mm -hmm. we could have a whole conversation about whether or not they felt that was the best they could do at the time, whether or not they, you know, in fact, did uh, sell their members out for unsavory reasons or corruption or self-serving, what have you. We don't have to get into that right now. The point is, though, is that we've been on this backslide. Um, union density has been declining. Wealth inequality has been exploding. Um, and corporate America, you know, like is out for blood. They want to take everything they possibly can. They want to make, you know, they want to eliminate unions in this country entirely. Right. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a second. So this is the situation that we were in. We haven't even talked about COVID-19, but this is where mm-hmm. we were when the last UPS Teamsters contract uh, uh, was up five years ago. And that was a contract, in fact, that the membership had rejected. And uh, James P. Hoffa actually like invoked like, I mean, just, you know, they did some really shady shit. They invoked like some kind of like special powers within uh, the, 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 the Teamsters rules and uh, they rammed the contract through against the will of their members. So you had a lot of people pissed off about this, rightfully so, which is why Sean O'Brien and the reform uh, slate got voted in a year and a half ago, which is why workers have been far more mobilized, energetic and ready to fight when um, the contract negotiations with UPS came up again in 2023. Um, And, you know, I think that that's a very exciting thing to see, regardless of where we end up with this contract uh, the news that, that you mentioned at the top is that as of today, uh, this is July 25th. Uh, like I said, we had Teddy Ostro come down here. We were going to do this live stream like we're a week away from a strike. Mm-hmm. Then we heard at like noon today that a tentative agreement had been reached uh, between the union and UPS. And so we're trying to figure out what's in it. Um, because right now, so far, the details of that tentative agreement have not been made public. Uh, they're Tons of members who have not seen it as well. So a lot of people, you know, like commenting on it, you know, I, I would just stress people to kind of have a little patience. I know it's frustrating. We want to know what's in this, uh, but we don't have the details yet. So there's a lot of hearsay. There's a lot of speculation. Uh, but I'll just to kind of quickly sum up and then I promise I'll shut up. Um, oh, and in fact, <laughs> well, um, I'll, I'll read actually a nice, succinct kind of breakdown from uh, Teddy and Stephen Franklin. This was from a piece that we co-published within these times today, a short update on the TA being reached. Um, and so uh, they write, quote, the tentative agreement, which must be ratified by a vote of Teamsters members, includes what the union describes as a, quote, historic wage increase for full time and part time UPS Teamsters, the end of a despised two-tier wage system among delivery drivers, those are the 22-4 drivers, the creation of thousands of new full-time union jobs, the targeted installation of air conditioning in new package cars, i.e. those purchased after January 1st, 2024, and other measures to protect drivers against the heat. 
Also, limitations on forced overtime and Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a paid holiday, among other measures, right? So those are the talking points that we've got from the union so far. There are some other details in there that I would encourage folks to uh, check out, including some more fine grained details about what these wage increases are actually going to mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, I think the biggest uh, increase is going to be immediately felt for part-timers. Their wages are going to immediately go um, from $21 an hour to $23 an hour. Uh, Supposedly, according to the press release today, they will average $27 an hour over the course of the five years of the contract's lifetime. Um, Package car drivers will also see uh, a pay bump um, but that will be, I believe, from from um, you know a couple dollars from forty two to to forty seven uh, an hour. Um, so the devil's really going to be in the details. But I mean, uh, and you're not going to have everyone happy about this because um, you've got such a massive bargaining unit with uh, people in the package cars. Uh, two tiers of people driving those package cars, people in the warehouses, um, you know, people like at all kinds of tiers doing similar work, but making wildly different uh, uh, amounts for that work. And that was really kind of at the crux of this fight was like to try to condense and eliminate those tiers that have become such a rampant uh, uh, force in UPS. But we've also seen two, three, four tier systems uh, become a plague in uh, and become a really rally, a really big rallying cry for other workers who have gone on strike of late, including uh, John Deere workers. The two tier system there was a mm-hmm. was a critical rallying point for their strike. Um, you know, you've got a. Uh, 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 um, Kellogg's workers who were fighting uh, with their strike against uh, two-tier employment system as well, CNH industrial, the higher education strikes that we've been seeing, higher ed is like 50 Mm -hmm. tiers, right? Going from (laughs) master's students to PhD students uh, to lecturers to adjuncts to to non-tenure track faculty, yada, 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 right? So the fight against two-tier or multi-tier employment systems, i.e. for those who like are, are, are maybe not into the jargon. Like, it's just like, you know, the fight for equal pay for equal work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that has been, I think, a big motivating factor in this contract fight, which also, like, is very representative of a lot of the other contract fights that we've been seeing of late. Um, a renewed labor militancy after a period of, Do we lose um, Max for a second? you know, oh, kind go. of... Oh, sorry, did I cut out? We lost you for, for a little bit, though. Yep. it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I talked enough. <laughs> you know, Max, I'm curious. You mentioned like the uh, these different um, levels within this union, and I'm curious because Working People's Pod has such an important place. I'm curious your philosophy and like what's appropriate. Because uh, uh, obviously, if the rank and file vote against membership, that's easy, right? Like we support the rank and file. It's it's harder if it's like a very close vote, for instance, when a lot of people, particularly like our audiences, are really hungering for like militant labor action. So I'm just curious how you approach these things. Well, it's it's a really great question, and um, I appreciate one of the reasons I love your guys' show, right, is because you actually think about these things, right? Um, Because you can tell uh, when pundits and pontificators, it's not important to them, right? Mm -hmm. They, They just want the clicks. They want the outrage. They want, you know, they want what they want more than they want what the workers want. 
And I think that that is ultimately my North Star is that, um, you know, you need to know your place. And like it is you are not the leader of this union. You're not the leader of any movement. You are not the spokesperson for any class or movement or union or what have you. You know, you are a journalist, right? I mean, like and, and you know, you ultimately have to recognize where that line is beyond which it is no longer your place to say anything frankly. Um, so like this is something that came up a lot when, uh, as you mentioned, the railroad workers last year were in the midst of their own high stakes contract fight. Uh, I, I think we all remember what happened there. Um, you know, but I covered this extensively at The Real News and my podcast, Working People, the segment I do at Breaking Points. Uh, my colleague Mel Buer and I were really kind of tag teaming the, the coverage on the of the crisis on the freight rail system. Uh, as the contract negotiations between the 12 unions representing over 100,000 freight rail workers and uh, the cartel of class one freight rail carriers were trying to negotiate their contract. By that point, that contract, uh, those contract negotiations had been going on for three years uh, mm -hmm. because you know, labor relations on the railroads are not governed by the National Labor Relations Act. So there's a whole lot of extra provisions and, and crap that we don't have to get into right now. But anyway. We almost got to a national rail shutdown in September um, when you could have seen a strike initiated by the rail unions or a lockout initiated by the rail carriers. And in fact, the rail carriers jumped the gun and illegally started uh, uh, implementing a soft lockout a week before they were legally able to do so. But because no one in the media knew shit about labor or the railroads, none of them were even calling them out on it. Um, but that's a story for another day. So uh, we went through that whole thing and then we came up to the point where the a number of unions had voted against the tentative agreement that was reached in September uh, that was brokered by the Biden administration um, and, and, you know, kind of postponed what was an impending national rail shutdown in late September, kicked the, kicked the ball down the road to late November, early December. That's when scab Joe Biden and, uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans in Congress conspired to crush uh, the rail workers from striking and force a, an agreement that they didn't want down their throats and effectively endorse uh, all the greedy and destructive practices um, that have destroyed the rail industry while making record profits for rail executives and their shareholders, right? So in the midst of all of that, when, um, you know, folks were really hungry for information about which way the different unions were going to vote, because this was very complicated, right? Because on the <laughs> rail system, if, if one of those unions goes on strike, it will effectively trigger a rail shutdown because all the other unions have provisions not to cross picket lines, right? So it didn't, you didn't need all 12 unions. You didn't even need the biggest of those unions, like the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen or Smart TD to be the ones to, uh, uh, go on strike, uh, with, uh, without, you didn't need the big ones to go on strike, uh, to cause a national rail shutdown. Um, and so, you had what you were talking about there, Matt. You actually had some unions vote the tentative agreement down, uh, some pass it, but by extremely narrow margins. Um, and like what folks would, what workers would kind of tell me in that case is that, you know, a lot more people probably would have voted this down if they thought that Biden and Congress would let them strike in the first place, but they didn't. And so they voted for it just because they felt like, well, I, this has been going on for three years now. I want my back wages. 
I'm tired mm-hmm. of having this fight and they're not going to let us fight anyway. And so there you're in an interpretive position, right? Where people are asking you, what is the membership saying? You're, you, you can try to synthesize that, communicate it and let people know the calculus that workers, rank and file workers are making. Um, but I think you, as if you call yourself a journalist, if you believe yourself to be at least nominally beholden to any semblance of journalistic principles, and also if you believe yourself, you know, if you're honest with yourself about your role as someone in the media uh, who is supportive of the movement, wants to see the movement grow, wants to see workers win, but needs to know uh, your place, then that's a moment where I would tell people, I was like, here's what workers have told me. Um, but ultimately, it's not my point to say my place to say how they should vote. Right. Because I'm not in their position. Right. And, right. and it's not my union. Right. And and frankly, there are a lot of discussions and hard decisions that need to be made between people's families, their co-workers. Um, and, and again, I want workers to have everything. That's where I stand. But I also respect people as human beings with individual agency. Um, and any good organizer will tell you, like, you cannot violate that principle. You have to always respect people's agency. You can't control people. You can't tell them what to do. They have to be the ones to kind of walk through that door themselves. They have to make the decisions themselves. Uh, you just got to keep being there for them and support them either way, even if they don't make the decision that you want to. So I think like ultimately there's a long, long winded way of saying that in cases like these, I want workers to have everything. Uh, if there are people who are being short shrifted by this contract and there are there, that is still a very real possibility because mm-hmm. if part timer pay goes up, that's great. But if there are no provisions for minimum hours, then mm-hmm. UPS is just going to offset those fucking hours so that they're essentially taking home the same amount every week. Maybe like they'll get a little bit more, right? Or like UPS, as they did with the past contracts, they're saying we're going to create 7,000 new positions in the company, full-time positions. Past uh, contracts, they said it's going to be 10,000, going to be 5,000, whatever. Then everyone forgets about it. They don't have to meet those like requirements. And in fact, UPS never does. They just say Mm -hmm. as part of this new deal, we're going to create X number of new full time jobs. And then people forget about it by the time, you know, the contract is in effect. So there are plenty of ways that workers can still get screwed over here. But I mean, the Teamsters have pulled a lot of concessions out of UPS. That also should not be forgotten Mm -hmm. here. Right. I mean, because. Yeah, go. No, no, sorry. I I was just going to say, and like one thing that we've been covering here, too, is that like this is um, like a good example, right? Um, Regardless of what even ends up happening with the final contract, the ratification, like just the the success that we've been able to see from the outside of like the things that have been able to be negotiated in this contract. That's good for the UAW, for example, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like this is like this is a major event. This Teamster struggle is a major event, but it's also a major event in what seems to be a big wave of major events in labor. And I think particularly for people who are just sort of maybe watching this as a pro labor person um, in, in general, like understand that this is a part of like this massive wave that's happening right now. And these are like, you know, these these are these are victories in pushing the, this movement forward. Um, and yeah. in, in the general sense, like this gives people confidence because, look, there's no doubt about it 
that the fact that across the country, <laughs> Teamsters doing a practice strike, for example, like plays a role in these contract negotiations, right? Um, you know, regardless of if you think this is the right contract or not, it's like this scares the bosses, right? And these are things that weren't happening as much four or five years ago that are very, very good, productive, like changes. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Because also, like, I know the, 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 and we don't even have to talk about Obama. We can do that another time. But like, <laughs> like, if we're talking about like what this says about where the movement is and where we could go from here, right? Again, there was so much in the UPS contract fight that is indicative of what so many other workers are going through around the country, uh, especially after COVID-19. Right. Mm -hmm. Because think about it uh, for everyone watching and listening, the, like to state the obvious, when COVID hit, uh, that was a boom to the e-commerce model. That's why Amazon, you know, like saw its uh, 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 profits like soar and, uh, you know, the, the wealth of, you know, Jeff Bezos and other, you know, like oligarchs just exploded over the past three years. Um, and it was UPS and FedEx, and, you know, like and, and delivering those packages. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so you you had workers uh, in the warehouses, workers in the package cars uh, risking their lives like all other essential workers to keep the economy running. Um, and a lot of people died. A lot of people got sick. Uh, they were being uh they were having all of this, you know, additional work piled onto them. Um, it was a really, really brutal three years for mm -hmm. UPS workers. That, I think, is the consistent theme throughout all the UPS workers I've talked to is they say it has been a rough few years for us and we deserve more than what we are currently getting. And we made this company uh, over a hundred billion dollars in mm -hmm. revenue in 2022 alone. Like, think about that. A hundred billion dollars in one year in revenue. And like, then UPS was coming to the table, like, you know, with these like BS sort of, uh, 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 proposals on the economic issues. That's why the, you know, Teamsters were really playing hardball with them, just like John Deere workers were when they voted two tentative agreements down, a, uh, about two years ago, because they were like, no, no, no. Like you are more profitable than you've ever been. You have the money. We see it. We're making it for you. Like you need to put up uh, and we need to be compensated for all that we have done to make you those profits. And I feel like one thing that I, has been really like positive just from like a media analysis thing is like Sean O'Brien has been really good at hitting those talking points when he's on air, like really good about talking about profit in a way um, that I think is maybe different from the way like maybe even like a typical liberal or Democrat might describe it. I mean, really using kind of class terms as to where the money's going and who's producing it. And then I think, yeah, it's just like very beneficial for one, the Teamsters movement, and two, just generally, it's good to have somebody on Fox the discourse talking <laughs> yeah. about, you know, UPS is basically taking money from the people who produce the wealth for the company, right? Mm -hmm. No, it's huge. I mean, we saw it with, with Mick Lynch and the mm -hmm. RMT in the yep. UK. Like, if you've got someone who's really effective at navigating the corporate media propaganda or state-owned, you know, BBC kind of propaganda, like it can really have an impact for people who just don't ever get that kind of sharp, succinct perspective on the media that they watch, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a huge difference between like, say, now 
1997 when the Teamsters uh, UPS workers last went on strike. Right. I mean, because I was a conservative in 1997 in Southern California. We had Fox News on all the time. It was like a Mm -hmm. new thing. We had right wing radio on all the time. But even on the other like news channels, it was all just sort of like, how is this going to hurt the consumer? Mm-hmm. Right? How are mm-hmm. how are you, the consumer, going to be inconvenienced by this? And the Teamsters, to their credit, were able to circumvent that and flip the kind of uh, uh, anti-worker, anti-union propaganda in 1997 on its head with the phrase "part-time America won't work." Right? That was their rallying cry. And people, uh, workers around the country were feeling that message because they were also feeling the explosion of part time and, and, you know, what well, less than full time, more precarious work. Um, you know, they were seeing their wages stagnate, even though they were working longer and harder. And, you know, we were going through the real estate dot com boom, so on and so forth. Right. So like the, the phrase, uh, and the concept that, for working people to have a comfortable, dignified life and to not spend every waking moment of their lives working just to get by and just to scrape by to make ends meet. Um, but in fact, we deserve more than that. That was able to rally enough people who in their own lives were feeling that same squeeze and identify their situation with that of the UPS workers who were on strike. And they won, you know, major concessions at that point. And after that, sadly, is when we really started seeing the kind of reactionary concessionary mm-hmm. backslide within the Teamsters itself. Um, but what I think you're seeing now with which is really um, it's really something to seize on. It's a moment of opportunity for all of us. I'm talking all of us on the left, all of us in media, all of us in labor. We have a window here that's not going to come again. We have a tight labor market. We have a post-pandemic sort of like uh, 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 energy uh, and resentment, a good resentment that I think is fueling a lot of working people to say, hey, we sacrificed to make not only we thought we were sacrificing to keep the economy afloat. Now, three years later, we find out we were sacrificing and we our friends died and our families died to make you pieces of shit record profits. And now you're trying to, like, come back to the bargaining table and ask for more concessions from us. And that is not going to play with us. Right. And and um, so, like. That's the kind of the, 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 the what is it we say? The, the, the contradictions are intensifying, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the dialectic is in full swing right now because those sort of bloodthirsty uh, uh, executives and shareholders that have amassed so much wealth through the pandemic. It's an, it's it's truly mind boggling how much more the ruling class has taken from us over the past three years, not even counting like Trump's tax cuts a couple years before that. Right. But it has been a massive transfer of wealth upwards over the past decade, if not longer. And so um, you are reaching the point where the more powerful and the more the wealthy and uh, that like, you know, and the more consolidated. The business class becomes because that was another effect of COVID-19 is a lot Mm -hmm. of middling and smaller businesses got wiped off the table, got absorbed Mm -hmm. into uh, Amazon and and other like, you know, like massive behemoth entities like that, so on and so forth. And so as the market becomes increasingly dominated by, you know, these different conglomerates, these, uh, you know, two or three mega corporations that aren't really competing with each other. Right. So like when that when that 
even the fiction of competition in the market starts to fade, what you end up with is oligopoly. And you end up with like cartels like on the railroads with the major class one freight rail carriers. They're not competing with each other. They all got their own portions of the country carved out. They got their uh, the shippers who need to use the freight rail systems essentially locked in and, and they, they have to use the rail. So they're going to pay whatever the railroads are charging. Right. When you get a situation like that, you see corp- capitalist true colors. They don't want to compete. They want to like put in the least amount of effort they possibly can and exploit the fewest amount of people they can for the maximum amount of output they can so they can be stuffing as much as they can into their own goddamn pockets. And now the reason I think that this is an opportunity for us, because it's like it has to get this bad for us to kind of, you know, stand up straight, mm-hmm. clench our fists and really like fight back with the force that we need to fight back with is that uh, the more oligopolized the economy becomes, uh, the more a, a sort of like non-competitive uh, market emerges dominated by, you know, a few sort of oligopolistic entities and they are not being regulated. They're not being, you know, uh, 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 their antitrust like effectively doesn't exist anymore in this country. So what that means is that these same corporations that are screwing over their workers to make all those excess profits and who feel so powerful that they can just steamroll any union or any uppity workers that get in their way, um, they are also taking advantage of their consumers because they're like, well, if we're not competing with anyone, then mm-hmm. we can just put out the lowest quality product uh, because where else are people going to go? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where I think there's a really interesting kind of uh, a connection here where a lot of consumers are on the workers side because we are also and it's also like we're all worker consumers anyway. There is no yeah. clean division between who we are as workers and who we are as consumers like we work, we make our wages and then we go buy shit and consume. Right. So we're all in that kind of same boat. But I think like from uh, 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 like the Hollywood strikes that are going on mm-hmm. right now, the writer's strike, SAG-AFTRA, uh, you know, set workers with IATSE are, are you know, like making moves as well. Um, you know, they are they are kind of pointing this out. They're saying the things that you guys hate about Hollywood, we hate it, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they are they're making it impossible for us to make a living as writers. They are creating these many writing rooms that have fewer writers who are meant to pump out more work and less time, get fewer residuals through streaming services. So like they can't make a living. Uh, so they're squeezing us on the labor end uh, at the same time that like they're like forcing us to like pump out crap. That, you know, like like a, the billionth uh, superhero movie, because yeah. all they want and care about is profits. And so um, and now even when they're talking about integrating AI into the filmmaking process, what they are admitting to you, the consumer, is that hey, it's not going to be good. Yeah, it's going to be yeah, it's going to no be way. cheap. It's going to be cheap and you're going to take it because you're not going to have anywhere else to go. And so the more that we confuse the sort of consumer rage and the worker rage at the same people who are trying to squeeze us on both ends, right? That I think really like builds the potential for a revolt against corporate America and the corporate destruction of everything, which is like, that's what we're up against right now. Yeah. 
Absolutely. No, I mean, um, I think that's an important point. And, you know, I think it's something that sometimes we miss on the left. We just did a big thing on Rosa Luxemburg's Reform and Revolution. And one thing that I was just thinking about when you were talking is that, like, she writes a lot about um, consumers, actually, which seems strange. I wouldn't, you wouldn't expect it maybe in like an early 20th century Marxist text, but it's in there. Um, I think it's worthwhile to strategize around that. But Max, I know you got a lot going on this evening. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today on Left Reckoning and all the great work you do on Working People's Pod and the Real News Network. It's always a pleasure talking with you, brother. Thanks, brothers. Appreciate it. Solidarity from Baltimore, guys. All right. Yes, folks. Great to talk to uh, Max. Uh, yeah, dude. He's been straight fire. Um, also, letting folks know there, uh, check out the Real News Network's YouTube channel too. After you're finished watching Left Reckoning and the post game, uh, they did a live stream uh, talking about a lot of these issues as well. And they do great work over there. Yeah. Uh, speaking of not doing great work, Russell Brand. <laughs> we jumping who, in. Who I look, I have a long history with Russell Brand. Russell Brandheads will know this. Only the real Russell Brandheads will know what the audio boom <laughs> episodes are. <laughs> I, 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 I listen to any, every radio show slash podcast this guy put out for a long time. And I thought his politics, like, initially I thought they were decent. And, um, you know, he was always, like, name check Noam Chomsky and stuff like that. He wasn't the most serious guy. He did the audio book of Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. Exactly. And because he wasn't afraid to take certain stands uh, on certain issues, um, some more thought out than others. Like he appeared uh, dressed as Osama bin Laden at the MTV studios <laughs> yeah. the day after 9-11, which <laughs> was when he was, uh, you know, addicted to heroin, as he says, um, you know, to kind of explain that. But he also mentioned the Nazis uh, uh, regarding Hugo Boss at a uh, uh, award show. Um, and also stood up for the NHS a number of times, which is like the type of work that I mainly appreciated and would like to see more of. Um, I, no, I mean, I, I don't know if I would want to dedicate an episode to it, but like Russell Brand is just like an endlessly fascinating character to me. I will admit, um, you know, I respect Brand tremendously, um, particularly just like being um, self-centered for a second. Like as a broadcaster, I think he's really good. You know, yes. he's just like somebody for what Matt and I do. He's somebody worth watching just to see what he, how he delivers things. He's great at it. Um, I know brand, I, I, um, you know, casually, I was never a brand head like Matt. Um, but, you know, I know brand from, you know, the famous Mark Fisher essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle, um, where I, I still like agree with Mark Fisher's defense of brand in that, that piece. Um, yeah. Um, you know, and which, which is why, like, it's sometimes sad and hard to sort of look at what this is. But I mean, I think um, I don't want to like open up a whole can of worms before we jump into the segment map. But like, you know, really what I think this is, is that like COVID and some of these things really gave kind of wealthy folks who are maybe, you know, more countercultural, let's say that, right? Um, iconoclastic thinkers um mm -hmm. and out right we're like you don't have to talk about the nhs or class politics right you could talk about mask mandates and shit like that right which is yeah. easier to do as a rich person than to say that like yeah 
um, you know, what's going on with workers in this country is bad. And, you know, yeah. And there's like, there's a whole lot. Um, the irony there purpose. though. Yeah. The irony with that is the guy who I always liked as Russell's uh, sort of uh, partner in crime is, is producing a Matt Morgan who honestly, I looked at myself as the Matt Morgan to Michael Brooks's Russell mm -hmm. brand. When I started that Matt Morgan, to my knowledge, took uh, COVID really seriously. And I think like it, this shit dro drove people apart, I think. And I, that's oh, yeah. me inferring, but like they haven't done anything since. And I think he was really tethering Russell to reality. He was willing to make fun of Russell in a way that I don't think anybody is anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I'll just say this, um, risking myself getting in trouble. Like what, what COVID um, sort of does like, what, what happened with like COVID and the lockdowns and the mask mandates, like just like, I'm just trying to break down like the appeal of this. Right. And why right, right. it's still here. Um, regardless of if, if it's right or wrong. And I think that it's right to do mask mandates. I think it was right to put things on lockdown and do the health procedures. But what happened was, you know, these things came down very top down. Right. And there was this kind of sense that this is being done to us and we're not having a lot of say in something that is like dramatically affecting our lives. Right. right. And the crisis here is not the policy per se, but the fact that like a lot of people feel very alienated from politics. A lot of people don't feel like they have a lot of say in their life. And it, it is a goldmine for reactionaries to basically say like this thing that sort of happened, right, where you didn't get a lot of say that dramatically affected your life. And maybe you think it was wrong or whatever, um, you know, was sort of done to you versus like being done as a society. And yes. it's something sorry matt just like to finish the the point about like russell maybe one time being more ch of a champion for the left this is something for a brand is very easy for him to fall into and sort of eschew maybe the more radical socialist pro-labor worker politics because this is something that doesn't affect your class as much right because a rich guy like russell brand had to wear a mask um and like had all these kind of things happen to you know what i'm trying to say so like you know yeah. it comes a really an easy thing to do some form of like populism let's call it um on um you know that is speaking to like a a kernel of truth of the fact that like a lot of people don't have a lot of say over their lives so regardless if it's the right or wrong decision doesn't matter at this point a lot of people are sort of rebelling to the fact that like this is being done to me i don't have a lot of say the yes. neoliberal state has sort of foreclosed my participation in society. So it is, it's a goldmine for these guys and brand out of all of them, I think is the most frustrating because he at least comes from a place, both with his life story of being like a, you know, from a working class background uh, to his like period when he was more firmly on the left um, to, to what he's doing now. We're like, you know, like brand 10 years ago could not have a conversation with Ron DeSantis. Right. Yeah, all the stuff that they're going to talk about, you know, in this interview is COVID related, because even if it's not COVID direct, it's the censorship. Well, what's the censorship that Russell Brand's mad about? Russell Brand is mad about because he's pushing COVID misinformation on his podcast and YouTube's coming down on him. Right. Yeah. Right? So it's it's an avenue for him to be aggrieved and to have all these kind of things. Yeah. You know, it's just like I, I, I think understanding where this comes from. Um, historically, it's like, I, again, like Brand couldn't have done the six, six years ago, four years ago. It's a very like recent opportunity for him, this kind of move. Yeah. And part of it is just, you know, being like the rumble investors are DeSantis guys. Um, yeah. But also, no, like, true, you know, true, true. But like, also, like, yeah, I think, but like, uh, sorry, sorry. 
go ahead. No, I'm, I'm just saying, like, I don't think in another universe, Bran does this flirtation with the right. Um, because I guess what I'm trying to say is for Bran, it becomes easier to do it because you don't have to turn your back on workers' rights. You don't have to turn your back on all these other kind of things that I think Bran sort of believes in, right? We can talk about maybe if he does sincerely or not, right? Mm -hmm. But he doesn't have to do this about face. He can say, oh, well, the right is the force that is challenging this thing that right. now I have sort of elevated to like the prim like the central aspect of politics, right? So yeah. like it is a right turn, don't get me wrong, but it's like a right turn with caveats, if that makes sense. Well, it's it's a libertarian turn, yeah. really. And yeah. like, and it makes sense, like, and then I think it can be overstated how successful this is. I think because it's like kind of rational and you have major, major media figures doing it. Um, but it's, it's, it, it does make sense that people in a society where anytime the government is acting on you it's not like for your benefit mm -hmm. um that and and like yes i think it's totally um uh understandable but he's also like it's, it's not well, understand. We... i'm not saying it's understandable i'm saying that like the logic here it's like it's, it's yes. an easier out than him saying like actually i now believe in trickle down e economics and now i don't believe in unions it's like oh right. well, now the right is the only one who took the covid threat of the big state seriously right that's yeah. what it is and so we get uh, here. In Florida recently, I was struck by the amount of pride that Floridians have in their state. <laughs> you appear to be universally endorsed by the population of Florida. <laughs> well, I'm glad you noticed that. I was born and raised in Florida. And while I've always loved the state, we didn't have the same type of pride growing up that, say, people in Texas have about Texas. Wow, I missed oh. that little kicker there. Interesting. Well, you, of... That's for me, but yeah. <laughs> you don't have to um, but you know, the big the big one was this, and I did confirm that this is actually in the uh, the show unedited. Um, the surfs uh, clipped it here, but this is actually how this ran, and it it like you said, I believe this is coming into how he's doing a grand jury about some COVID stuff, and uh, the thing that's sad about this is like. Like I mentioned, like Russell and David Sachs and all these Rumble investor guys who are in the in the bag for DeSantis. I would like to think that Russell wouldn't need to do like mid-roll advertisements for yeah. shitty products. Um, I'd like to think he's making enough money that the, sh the shitty thing is, though, is I wonder how those deals were structured because Rumble stock has been down since those that deal was announced. It's down, I think, like 20 percent or something like that like shit dude it's like the same reason i'm sorry it's the same reason no other twitter thing is gonna work yeah you know what i mean it's just like no one gives a shit at a until elon point. kills it entirely yeah <laughs> um but here is this uh this uh clip here for example i've got a grand jury uh hearing evidence uh in florida about misrepre misrepresentations by pharmaceutical companies over covid19 jabs there's not another elected official in the country uh, who's been willing to to ask those types of questions. You know, we're doing it and we're getting we're getting answers for that. So I, I really want to know who Russell's looking at off screen here, because throughout the course of this interview, he's very, very like someone's singling from him. They should yeah. be behind the camera. <laughs> I present a great opportunity for people because I have all the right enemies uh, you see it by how they're attacking me, but I also have a proven record of beating me. 
the wrong enemy is Donald Trump. Uh, and we would do the same thing as president. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate you answering that question. That's an excellent answer. Now, Ron, I'm sure you're aware <laughs> that our show is sponsored by Sheath Underwear. You know that already. You don't need me to tell you that, Ron. You've got bigger fish to fry. And surely we've noticed that it's summer and it's getting hot out there. And I don't know about you, Ron. But I'm getting pretty hot down there. Now, if you wear traditional, old-fashioned underwear, like your granddad, you and me, Ron, will be vulnerable to sweating and chafing all over our precious reproductive organs. Once that temperature's high, I mean, I don't know what Donald Trump wears on his privates, but I tell you, Joe Biden, that guy goes commando. Summertime is not an issue if you wear sheath underwear it's ergonomically designed oh with separate compartments to keep everything down under dry and cool this bit's dry and that bit's cool the quality is amazing and with so many different designs there's something for everyone's testicles and penis so put an end to all that sweating <laughs> and stop all those embarrassing readjustments you can stop all of that with as long as enough people use the link two of the most powerful voices <laughs> in the space and that the you so, uh, and he asked him, uh, well, I guess we can just skip that little question. Currently occupy governor have to be regarded as Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson. Yeah, so he talks about how he gets along with those guys. So, I mean, look, it's great that, uh, um, that Russell Brand is out here supporting a veteran-founded uh, <laughs> company. Uh, Sheath was conceived of sheer necessity in the sweltering heat of the Iraqi desert by U.S. Army Sergeant Robert Patton. <laughs> I, I can't. I'm not going to try it. I'm not. For, this isn't a problem no. for me, um, I'll be honest. But, like, I can't see how that solves it over an overly engineered. <laughs> we don't have to get too much into the logistics of it. No, I mean, uh, it's it's crap. It's crap shit uh, for morons. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty incredible that... Uh, um, that Ron DeSantis, an American presidential uh, candidate, not that I have tremendous respect for the <laughs> for the office, is yeah. having these cuts put into his interview with Russell Brand. Um, I mean, like, I mean, where do we want to start? We want to go to DeSantis, or we want to start with keep with Brand for a minute. Um, well, actually, I do have a piece on uh, DeSantis on the war in Ukraine, if we want to get into how this veteran uh, talks. Is. But you, you go ahead. Where do you want to go? Oh, I mean, all I'm saying is that, like, the best thing that Brand does in that interview is that segment. I mean, yeah. that's the respect that you should give to Ron DeSantis, right? Uh, absolutely yeah. nobody and the loser and the bigot. Um, it's a shame that uh, he spent the rest of his time buttering him up. But if anything, that little nudge at the in the middle or whatever it was is good yeah. um i mean look it's 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 bizarre it's disappointing um from brand somebody who i held out i know you did too we held out hope for, for brand for a while i could imagine like what what if russell take it from me a russell brand fan uh what russell would do if he was still good what would make this show one that i would love to seek out is if he would ask like hey what about guantanamo <laughs> Right. But he and, and that's the type of thing that he would absolutely do. That's no different than bringing up the Nazis at a Hugo Boss fashion thing. That's like that's be provocative. But instead, he's on this new shit about having convivial conversations with these motherfuckers. And with like, that's rock. not interesting. Exactly. You know, with the with the people who thought his family was subhuman. Right. With like the offspring of, of Thatcherism. 
I mean, it is it is a betrayal in 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 such a large way. And like you know, a lot of times, like the, I think the left, particularly like left media, can be really annoying. Where it's just like, oh, well, you say this, you sort of overstep this, and we're coming at you now. Like this is a, a full on betrayal. I mean, what Ron DeSantis has been pursuing in Florida is not only just like the war on like human beings in the sense of like what he's doing to immigrants in that state, um, to education in that state. Uh, to his lack of care for like a very serious health crisis. Um, but this is also somebody who wants to see all of the provisions that we give to working people in the society scrapped and pulled away. Right. So like, look, I, I mean, I'll say it very bluntly. Somebody like that is a traitor um, to to where, where he's from. When, when you sit and have a convivial conversation with somebody like Ron DeSantis, who all of the benefits, you know, Bram talks about like how the NHS was so important in his life, right? How like some of the British social safety net was so important in his life. When you sit and you have a friendly conversation with somebody who wants to destroy those things, you're betraying yourself, your family and your class. And it is truly, truly disgusting. I'm all for maybe getting to a place of like maybe having a conversation on these kind of things. But if you run away from those conversations the way that he's doing here because you are so solely fixated on something that for you right um like we're not even getting into like covid lockdowns or all those kind of things of what they meant for a lot of working people because a lot of people were left to fend for themselves under right. the system um what it was for you was an inconvenience like you are set up perfectly to ride through this matt and i were also people who were set up perfectly to ride through something like that we did not have to feel the full effects of those kind of things so i'm open to conversations about them but a brand being annoyed that like um they just got to do their show from their home yeah. right it's just like it, it is like you missed me with that shit there's just like nothing yeah. endearing or interesting about that kind of perspective and then to take it so far but now you're doing puff pieces for not only the right wing, but like the losers of the right wing being Ron DeSantis yeah. run not the even most Trump. online campaign ever and is going to get his ass kicked by Donald Trump. It's embarrassing, right? Which is bad enough, but it is a true betrayal, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, just to take it on and here's uh, Russell looking at his uh, maybe his former self uh, through the window, like like uh, what is that Christmas a Christmas Carol or something like that? But, uh, I would eliminate the Federal Department of Education if we can. I don't think that that the federal government was never envisioned to have really any role in K through twelve. What they've tried to do is they've tried to use funding to force behaviors of K twelve districts uh, school districts. So, for example, on the on the uh, the women's sports, Trans. you know, they they want they say, you know, you have to have if a man uh, identifies a woman, they have to be allowed to do women's sports. Otherwise, you lose lunch money. So they've used that aggressively under the Biden administration to try to change behavior. My view would be like, let's take education, send it back to the states, get the federal government. Just a nice little opportunity for uh, Meatball yeah, Ron there be. to just go off. And, you know, I mean, I have this clip of, uh, yeah, let's, let's, might as well tack it on here. Yeah. Um, I did watch a little bit of this. Um, uh, Russell Brand, about a minute and a half before this, asked uh, Ron about Ukraine and his position. Um, and I'll just say this this isn't exactly anti war, <laughs> my opinion, but your, your mileage may vary. I think what's happening in Ukraine is they're barreling towards a multi year stalemate where a lot more people are going to die 
uh, where you're going to have a lot of treasure uh, that's going to spent, be spent for basically uh, no change in outcome. And so what I've said is uh, we need to focus on uh, achieving a sustainable peace in Europe. Uh, we should not want to see this thing go on. Uh, oh, so we far? have pressing problems at home that we're neglecting, as you mentioned, our own veterans. We have an open border in the United States of America. We have American families that are losing children to fentanyl overdose by the tens of thousands because we haven't secured our own border. And yet, what? We've sent how many hundreds of billions of dollars uh, there? They're not sending that uh, to us. Also, I do think we have threats in this world, such as the, the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. What you've seen is the amount of ammunition and the amount of weapons that have been sent uh, to, to the Ukraine has actually dwindled our own stocks so that if we were potentially uh, in a major conflict, we would not be able uh, to likely to respond. Now, so all these guys getting credit for being like anti-war. His problem is like, oh, it's not that we the money we're spending could be coming back for like anything good. It's to give it to similar contractors to militarize the border and then prepare for war with China. Mm. No, I mean, it's 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 absurd. And just to sit there kind of dumbfounded throughout that kind of shit is just unacceptable. Yeah. Um, so that's Russ for you. Uh, Russ, if you want to talk to some leftists, though, shout out. Uh, you know, we're we're always willing to have convivial conversations. More now more than ever, we need to reach out uh, with those we disagree with. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's like to sit there and, and to talk to somebody like um DeSantis, when in your own country in the United Kingdom, the Labor Party under Slimy Starmer has basically backed off of trans rights. I don't know if you followed this at all. I saw yet. that, yeah. Um, you know, it is is really like you know, you want to talk about throwing people under the bus, you're throwing people under the bus right there. Um, look, I'm not like the first person to sort of uh patrol the edges of left left discourse but at this point i don't know what there is left redeeming here um you know if if he was having a conversation where he let desantis say his shit and he was um doing a lot more underwear ads during the thing <laughs> like i would support it right? oh man see you're you're making me imagine it be going good and funny <laughs> it would be really funny if he just cut through it all the time to start talking about his nuts how sweaty his nuts were the whole time but that's not what happened there yeah i mean maybe he can get cornell west back on uh, i, I don't know i i think he's got some shitty ass producer that's put a bug in his ear i mean i'm i'm making excuses yeah who but... knows i mean who knows who knows what makes people do the things they do man um you know um i also think that like it's it's easy to become frustrated with the left i will say this <laughs> as a creator you know who does a lot of shows like i get pissed off at like the left particularly like the online well i don't like that term generally but like you know that group it can piss you off a lot it does piss me off a lot too but you know, there's people who are in it because you know they sort of agree with this or that. It's a career option for them, and then there's people who are like in it because you know they are like me who grew up white trash, you know, on food stamps, and they think that this is important to put information out there for people. Um, so with with people like Brand, 
um like when rich people like do this kind of thing it's just like whatever because I, honestly i'll just be completely honest with folks whenever i see rich folks or people who even like enrich for me probably is a different category than others right um people who maybe grew up way more comfortably than i did you know they sort of do this kind of thing I, I usually I never trusted them in the first place. When someone like Brand does this, who's somebody who, as far as I understand his biography, seems to be someone similar to to me, um, in in where he comes from, does this like the the contempt I have for people like that is just it's immense, um, yeah. because you really are taking a check to piss on your own people. You know who's a really bad example of that is Corolla was pretty uh who's Corolla? unless Adam Corolla oh yeah well, he's. he's Unless he's lying about it, but that that was my understanding is he was a pretty I mean, look, poor... a lot of like I mean, at least do that, in my opinion. Like the right, yeah. intermediary, right? You know? That's true. At yeah, least like oh, well, the rich people had the right idea all along. That's why I was fucked up back then. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, anyways, uh, folks, we're gonna jump over to the post game, patreon.com slash left reckoning. You appreciate the show, you appreciate the things we're able to cover here. Please consider supporting us. Um, and allowing us to do much more. We have really great things coming up for y'all in the month of August. Really excited for that. But look, it's not just charity. You get so much more. You get bonus episodes and you get the post game. Last Sunday, Matt and I finished our incredibly ambitious project of going through Marx's, I'm going to call it a book, right? I, I, I called it a, a essay before. Um, it's a book, right, Matt? I mean, it's massive. It took us three episodes to get through. Yeah. The 18th Brumar of Louis Napoleon, um, which I think is one of my personal favorite texts of Marx to give you a deep understanding of it. Part one, part two are up for everybody because we try to make sure that these things are able to reach people. But um, you get part three if you sign up uh, just for five dollars a month, allow us to continue doing this kind of work and you get the post game. And Matt and I are going to be taking calls, um, voicemails, questions from y'all. And as a special treat, we're going to do something we don't like to do as much on this show. We're going to talk about everybody's least favorite propagandist, a Jimmy Dore, um, and his betrayal of Cornell West. And we'll get it more into that in a second. But I will just say as a little teaser here, Matt, uh -huh. so with that crew, with that group of folks, like I'm somebody who, um, you know, I became a socialist uh, when I when I started working in concrete um, and, and, you know, doing that kind of work. And it really opened up the world to me. And I was a, like a real radical all the way through. And I was a hardcore Leninist. I still consider myself to be that on, you know, in some ways. But, you know, I had to soften some edges and sort of react to the world around me. Um, but I'm always very sensitive to people who are sort of saying we need to do more. We need to do more now. We need more. We, we need to have more of a fighting spirit, all that kind of stuff. So when I hear a lot of people who accuse Matt and I of being like sellouts or cowards, all this kind of thing, Democrats. I'm always very quick um, to sort of say, like, well, what are you saying? How can I respond to that? Because I don't consider that to be my kind of politics. Right. And maybe if you were exposed to more of what I'm trying to say, it help you out. What I have learned lately over the past few years and particularly over the past few months has been that that group of people don't have any kind of like it's not that like, oh, these guys are more willing to push more radical stratagems than us, um, but rather that they have created this bizarre cult of personality. And I'll just say this as a little teaser. If Jimmy Dore um, 
if I'm saying that like I'm very happy to support Cornell West and Jimmy Dore is now turning his back on Cornell West, I think that the problem here is a little bit less about somebody's radicalism um, or commitment to the fight and maybe has a lot more to do with personal issues and egotism than anything. Yes, he is a nutcase. Oh. <laughs> Honestly, man, him talking about Cornell, it's like, I don't know. It's hard to think of like the delusion. It's like a guy who never played in the pros, like being like LeBron, you got to do the skip pass to the court. Like, bro, Cornell West has done a lot of media, Jimmy. Yeah. Like even uh, anyway, we'll probably more than this. him, frankly. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely more on these topics. Cornell's been on C-SPAN like fucking the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I'm sorry that he didn't say uh, Russia was justified to, to invade Ukraine. And well, you know uh, why like, he doesn't say that? Because Cornell West is a thinker versus <laughs> just a reactionary. But anyways, exactly. If y'all want to get more of that, Patreon.com/slash/LeftReckoning. We'll be hanging out. Appreciate all of y'all. I'll be back. Going to be doing my Griscom stream on Wednesday this week, y'all. Um, so I'll be hanging out tomorrow afternoon. But don't wait. Come join us. We'll be over in the post game in just a couple minutes. So see us there. Peace.